Now, I want us to think back to our childhoods. We're in elementary school, and the homeroom teacher assigns a project that requires you to craft a diorama. So using nothing but an old shoebox, a stick of glue, and a handful of foliage, you set off to assemble something that looks like a window into the natural environment. For many of us, the shoebox diorama was our first exposure to the wilderness. The diorama was invented in 1822 by a Frenchman named Louis Daguerre, later known as the creator of the daguerreotype. These early dioramas were typically large-scale, housed in darkened theaters. They were three-dimensional exhibits comprised of a landscape painting in the background and plants and rocks in the foreground. A precursor to the cinema, this immersive experience was intended to give the illusion that the viewer had been transported to some far-off natural scene. And by the late 19th century, American conservationist Carl Akeley borrowed from this technology of illusion and incorporated his expertise in taxidermy to pioneer a new diorama called the Natural History Diorama, turning a popular form of entertainment into an awareness tool for the conservation movement. So imagine walking into a darkened theater. That's scholar Brian Rasmussen. And at the far end of this theater is an illuminated landscape, a landscape that looks like it's illuminated from within. And what you've got is a mountain scene in the far distance, enshrouded in clouds, a large panorama. And this is huge. Imagine uh, 30 or 40 or even 50 feet long and maybe 20 or 30 feet high. Mm -hmm. In the background, you've got these volcanic mountains shrouded in clouds and snow. Imagine in the foreground, you've got a jungle scene, for example. And framing the jungle scene, we have vines and trees. And in the very foreground, you have gorillas. So what I'm describing is one of the exhibits at the American Museum of Natural History, Hmm. the Silverback Gorilla exhibit, which is the exhibit that Carl Akeley is best known for. What are we supposed to understand about nature and the relationship between man and nature from what you just described? Very often, these dioramas weren't accompanied by lots of didactic text, for example. That's what I gather, right. You're supposed to experience it, but somehow come away with something. Right. You're supposed to experience, on an emotional and psychological level, the harmony of nature. That was the explicit design Uh of a diorama. And so this is why sometimes scientists felt dioramas were sort of devoid of intellectual content. But there was a kind of, let's call it rational pleasure in the design of a diorama. The idea being that you were led to some kind of higher understanding of your place in nature through this Mm -hmm. emotive experience in this Mm -hmm. darkened chamber, which was a kind of temple of nature. I mean, Mm -hmm. right, there was this sort of transcendental philosophy behind the whole idea of the diorama, that nature supplied truths that once supplied by religion, that this was a a distinctively American religion because of America's distinctive geography and fauna and flora, that there was something special about that. And so dioramas were designed not necessarily to instruct so much as sort of show you your place in an American landscape. I understand that the American Mr. Diorama was a guy named Carl Akeley. Can you tell me something about him? 
Carl Akeley was born in upstate New York in 1864, and he eventually came to work for the American Museum of Natural History, who regarded him as the, the biographer of the American wilderness. He was a, what we would call a, a certain type in the late 19th century, early 20th century, the hunter-naturalist type. I think the most famous example of this hunter-naturalist type is probably Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, and he was an ardent admirer of Roosevelt, and they went on expeditions together into Africa. And he was, I guess, he pioneered a lot of the techniques that we now come to understand as sort of synonymous with a natural history diorama. But he was also a sculptor. He was one of the first, If he wasn't the first, but he was one of the first to kind of marry sculptural aesthetics to taxidermy. So mm-hmm. in the middle of the 19th century, and taxidermy was mostly a decorative art. It's commitment to a naturalist, what we might call a naturalist aesthetics was not evident until guys like Akeley came along and sort of raised the bar in terms of thinking about like what you needed to produce an animal that looked real. So guys like Akeley were interested in going out into the field and doing field observations on animals so that they would produce taxidermied animals that actually looked like real animals as opposed to most taxidermy in the 19th century was done by people who had no field knowledge. So Akeley was at the forefront of that hunter-naturalist tradition of naturalists going into the field, collecting specimens, making observations, sketches, photographs, and whatever, coming back and trying to produce very naturalist, very realistic animals. I want to stop you right here and have you drill down into a term that you used, hunter-naturalist. Or we're also talking about conservation. At the same time, we're talking about Teddy Roosevelt shooting animals. What's the deal here? I mean, how can conservation be about killing animals, stuffing them, and putting in putting them in museums? So museums didn't see this as a contradiction in the 19th century. They didn't see it as a contradiction because they thought that the collecting animals was a form of conservation. Many of them were driven by uh, the fear that these landscapes of North America were disappearing. Around the middle of the 19th century, we get a lot of documentation on people registering their dismay and their concern that North American landscapes were disappearing. The railroad industry, cities, the collecting en masse of birds and other animals by commercial enterprises for like the hat trade, for example, which reduced the population of all kinds of birds and maybe even led to the extinction of some. So there's this real cognizance in the 19th century, late 19th century, that we're losing these landscapes, that these animals are disappearing to extinction. And so museums saw their mandate as conserving these landscapes, uh, preserving these landscapes in permanent form in museums, and then to bring those disappearing landscapes to people. I want to ask you about naturalism and nature. You've talked about how people like Akeley was much better at presenting, for instance, stuffed animals as as natural. But when I think back to the dioramas that I've been to, it's almost too perfect. I, I, I think of, you know, the tigers look like perfect tigers and they, you know, the birds look like, you know, they don't, I, I live out in the country now, like animals don't actually look like that, really. Right. What you're referring to is the idealization of diorama 
wilderness scenes. Yes, that perfect. That's just the word. They, they must have been idealized. Right. So this is where dioramas, where the naturalistic slash scientific slash zoological impulse behind diorama creation runs up against the other big impulse of, that fed dioramas in the 19th century, which is the sort of aristocratic trophy hunting tradition. So without hunter naturalists like Teddy Roosevelt, who belonged to a kind of aristocratic masculine tradition of hunting, who were hunting game in large numbers, without those guys, who also happened to be the donors and benefactors of these major museums, who wanted in some sense a place to put their trophies. So hmm. we can think of diorama halls at, at the American Museum of Natural History and elsewhere as essentially extensions of the hunting lodges of these hunter naturalists who were wilderness enthusiasts and who were going out on expeditions and they needed a way to turn those expeditions into something socially useful. And so they saw an opportunity in museums to give their collecting a kind of scientific and educational backing or justification. And was there an ideological bet there as well? Was there any sense of hierarchy in these displays? There's definitely hierarchies evident in these displays. The most evident, I think, is the, the order of charismatic nature, right? So most of the animals that we see represented in dioramas are large mammals, large megafauna, for example, birds. There's this definite sort of preference for a certain kind of nature. It's a very selective attention to nature evident. I have never these. seen a mosquito in a diorama. Right, exactly. So, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, these are not actual nature. These are idealized depictions of landscapes. And they're idealized in, on a number of levels. They're idealized because the, the animals that were collected were the best specimens. For example, hunters want the best specimens. They want the largest specimens. They want the, the ones with the most beautiful plumage or the most, uh, the richest, fullest coats. So in that regard, they're picking and choosing the animals that they do include. They're idealized also to reinforce the notion of pristine, untouched landscapes. That's the landscape sensibility inherent in a natural history diorama, that there are they're unpeopled landscapes. I'm just going to blurt it out. I mean, isn't this about demonstrating man's control of nature? Yes, it's man's control of nature. Well, well, so this is interesting because man's control of nature, the consciousness of man's control of nature in the 19th century is what drove people like Akeley to want to collect because right. they understood that once upon a time, the wilderness was a terrifying prospect, right? The wilderness was, you know, it was, uh, it was Jews in the wilderness. It was being, it was exile. It was darkness. It was dangerous animals. It's where the term howling wilderness comes from. Exactly. Exactly. And in the 19th century, the wilderness stops being a howling wilderness starts and, and starts being something um, that we understand that we're, we are directly causing the disappearance of. Mm -hmm. And so conservation emerges out of this consciousness, right? This consciousness that we are, that our domination of nature is directly resulting in the eradication of, of nature. So we're not really interested in conserving nature until we see it slipping away. And where is the place of the diorama today in an age of film and video and uh, 3D photography, not to mention the whole digital world? Has it gone the way of, let's say, silent films? Is it an oddity? In terms of their, their continued place, as we've talked a little bit about, they are bound up in all kinds of interesting political 
issues. Environmental historians will say that this is actually one of the problems of the wilderness myth is that we tend to selectively preserve and attend to nature. We don't necessarily think about ourselves in nature, for example. We think we tend to think right. about nature in these pristine, beautiful places, and that's really great. And a national park is in some ways like a giant diorama, right? It's, it's this attempt right. to preserve for all time against change a landscape. And that is a way of preserving landscapes. And it was instrumental in the creation of national parks, the same idea, for example, that went into the national parks, went into the creation of these dioramas. But what happens outside of those places? Right. What happens outside of the of the preserved landscapes? Do we express the same kind of ethical care to our local? I live in Los Angeles, for example. We don't exert the same kind of care uh, along, for example, the L.A. River where I live as we do to, say, Yosemite or something right. like that. And, it and so it shows. And so that kind of uneven distribution of our care may be a legacy of this old wilderness idea. Brian Rasmussen is Associate Professor of English and Department Chair at California Lutheran University. He's the author of Technologies of Nature, The Natural History Diorama and the Preserve of Nature, 